I first met Stuart and Todd back in Shawshank when they were battling all kinds of trouble, long before they battled with bits of rubber. Listen now to a tale of another kind of life on the inside, and then get busy making. I think we'll start with, uh, well, this episode is a very cool one. It's been a while since we recorded it, but we've been busy and just have coming up on a year getting up. Yeah, almost. It'll be a year next month. Holy cow. Happy October 1st, by the way. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the, the nice Halloween season is upon us. You got Um, a fire going in the, in the house. (laughs) Well, it's funny. You should say that. Um, uh, our fireplace got condemned. (laughs) What? Well, what happened is, uh, we, as you know, we have an open fire, but it was already fitted when we bought the house. So we didn't put this in. So it's been in there probably about 30 years. But we came to get the chimney swept because, as you have no doubt aware, you know, the, the cost of fuel is going crazy and this whole business in Russia and everything. And uh, the cost of gas particularly is very expensive. Um, so we're like, well, we have a fireplace and it does a good job of heating up the house, as you know yeah so uh you know i ordered a shit ton of logs to come in and i thought oh cool we, we can offset you know some of the heat that we'd need with gas by using this fireplace so we thought it would be sensible to get it swept prior to doing so right and uh, so we had a chimney guy come around and um yeah he basically took one look at it and said yeah i've got to put the sticker on it we, we, we this needs fixing up because it's it's unstable and there's like uh given that the house is is a, a lot of it's made of wood i thought that was a sensible thing to to follow sure what's that there. gonna set you back about 750 quid <laughs> motherfucker i know so the so, joys of um, home ownership so yeah so that's um that's 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 gonna happen hopefully next week uh and then we'll be able to have the fire back again but um so yeah so that that's kind of curtailed some of my spending really um uh yeah stuff like that just comes along and smacks you in the tits so again. well at least you've got the wood ready to go when when the yeah. place is fixed there we go so uh but hopefully i mean it won't pay for itself i don't think anytime soon but we can't use it at the moment so um we shall have a nice clean ready to go fireplace hopefully soon that'll keep the house warm anyway um <laughs> aside from fires i think i may have sent you uh, a, a screenshot about this it was on the, on the 911 and it was about nostril holes on pieces and i guess we could expand this into apertures generally on the face yeah. uh, but the post was by robert and he said uh, nostril holes uh, no matter how well your appliance was sculpted, if you don't provide holes for your actor to breathe properly, I call it lazy and a bad design choice. It's horrible if you can't breathe through your nostrils. I've even seen appliances, a lot of makeup schools do that, with um, that cover the nose, the eyes, and the ears. Um, and it's an interesting point, and I just thought it would be something to chat about briefly before we go into our episode interview, which is... Oh, yeah. Well, I, I personally, I think it is... Um you're pushing the boundaries of safety when you are blocking orify that we need for various things, whether it's eating. Can I just congratulate you on using the word orify in a sentence? (laughs) Thank you. I I think I used it correctly. I'm not sure. Orifices, but you know, covering, covering the mouth, you know, if you've got a, a face that has no eyes, has, has no mouth, God forbid, your your actor should suddenly start choking on saliva and their mouth is blocked 
Mm. So, you know, I think having ready access to the nose and the mouth is, is important and needs to be a design consideration. I think that's the point. I think it is, it is about the consideration is, is the big part of this because obviously there are designs we've all seen them and we've all done them where some of the face is obscured as in like you know part of the mouth or we covered an ear or both ears or the eyes even i've done makeups that i've covered both eyes you know it's um, it's, it's it's akin to blocking um putting prosthetics that completely brought block um front and back crotchal areas mm, yeah you know because you're you know if your actor has to hit the head, you don't want to have to get them completely out of prosthetics and reapply every time they have to, every time they have to take a leak. (laughs) So it's a, it's a nautical term. Uh, Very nautical. Um, You've been a nautical boy. Yes, you have. (laughs) So I think, I think if you, if you, um, if you are covering things, you just need to check that the person is aware that that's going to happen because this is the thing you can sculpt these things without, you know, the person being around and then just sort of stick it on. And at that point, then you find out that they can't quite function. Right. But I think, you know, if you've got marks to hit or you're supposed to see, you know, partially obscuring the eyes, I mean, I'm not saying you can't do it. It's just, it needs to be a consideration and it needs to be done in consult in consultation with claustrophobia is very real for some people. Yes. And I'm guessing you would probably discover this. This is what's good about life casting is you find this shit out pretty early on. But even if you had a successful life cast or you scan them, that at the point at which you obscure part of their faculties, I mean, covering the ears and the eyes is often something that robs people of, you know, two senses and they can't deal with that suddenly, you know, to, to have that taken away suddenly can be a problem and it can affect their performance. And I remember did something on a TV show called Cows, which was written by Eddie Izzard and it had a bunch of actors in it. And it was something I did years ago when I first started at the BBC um with barry gower barry gower and i were both on it and um the 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 the, the makeups were huge i mean they came out they were like you know sort of muzzles that you get on livestock you know yeah uh, and it kind of did that thing where it kind of gets in the way of the mouth because the piece sort of came three four inches out from the lips so you sound like this and that's so it changes your speaking pattern yeah it's, it changes your speaking pattern because it sounds like you're wearing something so even though it's not in that case uh difficult or it's it's not that it's dangerous it, it but it, it has an effect, which as the maker, you should make people aware of before you go ahead and do it. Because if they record the sound and like, well, now we've got to do ADR and we weren't expecting to do it, then it's a problem. But so I think, you know, being aware of these things, you just, you just flag up what the, the limitations are and see if people are okay about it. Cause you could cover their eye with, they could cover one eye with their hand or their ears or with ear defenders or something to practice going through the lines to see if it's something that would be an issue for them because right. they may not know until they're in the makeup that, Oh shit, I need both eyes. I can't have one eye covered or something. So, uh, but the breathing thing is an interesting one because obviously you've got to be able to breathe. Right. And I'm sure you've worked, you've worked with singers. I mean, some of those can be very precious about, what it is that affects the sound of their voice, especially if they're doing it live, then they, they can't just retake, redo it. So they can't. Yeah. And if you have to, to, to speak and breathe just with your mouth, mm. that becomes something you've got to practice at. And it's also, if you block your sinus, that's also going to change your yeah. vocal tonality. Yeah. So all of these things, they need to be considered and done in consultation really with the wearer. And I think it's quite, it's quite a thing, I think in a lot of makeup schools, because they're trying to constantly maybe outdo each other's not the right way of looking at it, but they're often, you know, pushed to kind of come up with more and more outrageous or, you know, adventurous designs. And in so doing, they may just row roughshod 
over a very compliant model, which is great that they would do that, but that that doesn't necessarily prepare you for a pissy act. You may be getting paid a lot of money and is not going to be inconvenienced in this way. Right. And aside from the breathing thing as well, I would say things like pieces that finish too close to eyelashes and eyelids, you know, aside from affecting the ability of the eyes to open and close properly, I've, I've had people that just their eyes water because the thing is near their eyelashes and they're not used to it. Or, you know, they don't like it on the lips, but they keep, you know, kind of gnawing at it like they've got a piece of pie stuck in the corner of their mouth or something. It's like, you right. know, they're damaged. And, and it could be something that, that you hadn't anticipated would be a problem. Yeah, it's, it's something that in the design process and the sculpting process, you have to remember that someone is going to be wearing what you're creating. Mm. And it's, they have to be comfortable doing so. It's, you know, it's never about the makeup. It's always about the performance. Yeah. And I guess like Rick Baker, didn't he always used to wear the makeup that he was going to- Yeah, he would try it off, try it first. So he gets to know exactly what it feels like from, you know, the performance point of view, which is a, you know, a decent thing to do. And I also think it's in a a dwindling capacity to let people do that. I think makeup tests are invaluable for this kind of reason where you can find these things out before, before the day and and have time. Is that, is that a little Gracie? It (laughs) is. Can you see her over there? Yeah. Hello. She's going to speak. Yeah, she's, what do you got all over my desk? <laughs> the little kitty cat what in the corner. What the hell is all I saw, I saw the tip of an ear coming into the front. Yeah. yeah, I think, you know, doing a makeup test is great, but also working into, you know, when you when you agree to do some work, you if it's something quite complicated that does cover lips or partially cover things, then you build into that, look, you know, we're going to do a makeup test and find out, but we may need on the basis of that test, we may need to redo the lips or something, in which case we need to build in time. Like don't put the makeup test the day before the shoot, because if you find out that, Oh, we need another week to fix this. You haven't got a week, but Oh, the luxury of a makeup it. test. Yeah. But if you got the, if you, if you can anticipate that you can build that into your opening gambit and say, you know, this is why it takes this long because we may have to redo stuff. It all depends on, on, on the budget and the, how good they want the makeup to be. But um, yeah, they need to be considerations at least. Uh, and not just breathing but that's a good one i mean you know Mm -hmm. just assuming your actor will breathe through their mouth not everybody can do that you know i found scuba diving can be quite uncomfortable when you're breathing through your mouth because well especially with a scuba tank the air is very dry and it just after a while it just becomes quite uncomfortable to synchronize your being underwater is different but oh yeah no the back of your the back of your throat gets dry and it yeah. becomes difficult to swallow. And exactly. So if you're delivering a cascade from there. Yeah. Well, you've got like a very emotional, you know, monologue to deliver or something, you know, and you've rather thoughtlessly blocked the nostrils, then it could just mess with their breathing pattern and everything. So, um, and I have done things like these, these nostrils um, for the, for the, you know, the cow makeups and stuff. And it's something I've done a fair bit with ears as well, is you find the nostril, of the creature makeup, which might be six inches in front of the, of the real nose. And then you find where the, the real nostril is and you sort of engineer a pathway with tubing inside the piece so that there is actually air is able to get to the nostrils and sound can get to the ears. Right. So what I've done in the past, uh, when I, when I've had to do animal characters for children's theater productions, where you're basically creating a mouse muzzle or a dog muzzle, um, I will just leave the area up, inside the mouth between the upper lip and the nose just leave it open mm-hmm. so that the nose is open gotcha to, to the air out. and then they can breathe through their mouth and their nose mm-hmm. uh, but you can't see it because 
the prosthetic is is covering the opening. That's a good idea. Yeah, I think especially for theatre, like you say, where people are delivering lines there and then, and there isn't going to be uh, any additional dialogue recorded afterwards. Yeah, same with teeth. Mm-hmm. Yes, if you're if you're doing teeth for for theatre, mm-hmm. you have to make sure that they're done in such a way that it's not going to affect how the actors speaks, giving them a lisp, which is what yeah many teeth will do. Yeah, because uh, you can't do ADR for theatre. No. And do you remember when we spoke to Chris Lyons, he was, you know, he talked about that a lot with the teeth, like, you know, doing Remy Malek's teeth for, you know, the Freddie Mercury look. And he's got to sing (laughs) iconic things. And I don't know if that's his voice we're hearing there on the stage, but it's, you know, it's, it's a real consideration how much it's going to interfere with the speech uh, and all that, all of that, that, that comes into it. And I guess, yeah, it's just a case of testing things and making people aware. Oh, and actors have to, you know, when you've got an, a live audience, um, you know, the adrenaline is is really high. I've had uh, actors bite through the bridges that I've, I've made for them, you know, that where it's basically, you know, fangs that you don't, I'm not really doing gums and got something up in the roof of the mouth, mm-hmm. very thin. Uh, and because of the adrenaline in the moments when they're on stage, they just close their mouth too hard and everything snaps. And then they got Thankfully, you know, nobody's broken their own teeth, but they've broken the, the appliances yeah. that have had to be recast. Yeah. So one way or another is <laughs> it comes back to bite in the ass. So yeah. speak in this case. Um, uh, and the other thing that, uh, not that it's quite the same, but I've seen makeups, particularly with generic makeups, where if it's not glued on properly, when they exhale, you'll see the face inflate slightly, <laughs> like the air gets to, and it just, it, it like, looks a, like a frog. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So again, if that's, if that's a choice and that's a good thing, if you wanted that, but if you weren't expecting it, especially if someone's panting, you know, they're running and they're, they're breathing fast. You can kind of see the nose kind of flapping in and out rapidly with each breath. Uh, that's an unintended consequence, you know, as in like overly wobbly ears or whatever, but th- we're expanding the brief far too much there, but uh, it was a very good um, thread. And I just wanted to bring that up because it's, it is something that isn't sculpturally you might be aware of until you come to deal with an actor that's you know upset with you <laughs> so yeah so good to build that into you, your job and make sure you think about these things early doors so on to our episode this time uh maddie scott spencer who we spoke to last year in a flat and it was an awesome chat i listened to it again this weekend yeah re- i listened to it uh, during the week also it's it's fucking brilliant. So much good information in there. It is. And I think what, I was thinking about why I like Maddie's style so much. And I mean, her videos are really the first videos I saw that didn't just assume that you knew a bunch of stuff. A lot of really good tutorials out there, but they rattle very quickly through things. They use the correct terminology, but it's like the person showing the video has forgotten that the person watching this for the first time doesn't already know this terminology and Maddie doesn't do that. She feeds you through very gradually, very slowly. And there's no sort of egotistical flashiness, even though the finished result is amazing and she's really good. No, she's a very good teacher. Yeah, she's very good. So I would recommend if you're interested in ZBrush and learning ZBrush, check out Maddie's. We'll put links in the thing, but check out. She's got some free videos on YouTube too. They're they're well worth looking at. It's 65 videos. It's the the Nauman School Online, our introduction to ZBrush. Mm -hmm. And I think it's ZBrush 2020, but it's 
it's even if you're currently up to date with ZBrush, it's going to be the same. Yeah. Uh, ZBrush hasn't changed enough for any of it to matter. And just the first three videos in, in this introductory series of 65 videos will change your world in terms of feeling comfortable with ZBrush. It's yeah. not as daunting as you might think. And she says so repeatedly. Yeah. I mean, we did specifically ask her about uh, beginners because I was keenly aware that this is, well, two things. One is that I didn't want people to feel that this was straying too far from our original brief of being a prosthetics uh, podcast. And secondly, um, that it would get too involved in itself, the technical side of things. But in this, we do talk about what would a beginner do. And one of the things obviously is the cost of, of buying a full-fledged a copy of zbrush the zbrush core mini and zbrush core i think zebra core mini is still free i think mm -hmm. uh it's not a fully fledged it's not as many bells and whistles obviously but it will get you up and running and starting and if you don't want to get that and you do have an ipad or a, or an android tablet uh nomad sculpt is a is a is, a, is an app i think it's 15 pounds or thereabouts um and it's pretty damn good and uh it's a very very good way of of starting to get into the digital headspace um but what i've and this we touched on this in the podcast is why i think it's so important is because previously when people sculpted digitally it was only to output as a model in a film whose we'd see its image mm -hmm. with the with the advent of affordable sort of desktop printing you can now output things physically so people like me can use digital means in the real world. And in the last couple of years of over lockdown, I've had quite a few jobs with the medical world where I've been doing exactly that. And it's amazing. So it's incredibly relevant to be able to use ZBrush in a prosthetic context, especially when you're dealing with scanning. You know, if you even if it's just printing cores, which you then mold, but the point is you can do a lot of stuff with it digitally, which if you can just open up ZBrush and use it just like any other tool, because that's all it is. It opens up, it's like finding a new floor in your house not just another room but a whole floor you didn't know was there you know and it doesn't yeah. the other rooms go away it's these are in addition to what you have well in our in our episode with uh which another one that hasn't hasn't aired yet uh with with uh ian morrill and and uh mike hill and norman cabrera mike does not believe that digital sculpting is actual sculpting <laughs> you know that that comment aside ZBrush and 3D scanning and 3D printing has become part of makeup effects. Well, enough is, people are using it. It, it is here and it's not going anywhere. Yeah. But it's the thing is, as we say in this podcast as well, it, you don't have to do one or the other. It's just another set of tools that yep. you use. And one of the things I think you point out, which is a really good one, is you know, you could digitally burn through a bunch of designs just to get the client to say yay or nay. And then when you've locked it down to one or two, then you take those models and then you sculpt them for real. Yeah. Or something that I'm looking to do. You remember we were talking about the, I had the hand puppet things I was going to do. Yep. Um, I've got, uh, this is a really good example of how we can use them together. So um, I had Richard Martin scan my hand, you know, in a kind of puppeteery position, right. my whole forearm. And I basically took that model, cleaned it up, flipped it and made a left and a right in one hand so it's basically just wide here so it would fit either a left or right hand uh, and i printed that and i've molded it i'm going to do the pour tomorrow in silicon i've done the jacket and everything i'm going to make a mold of that and then my plan is to sculpt up digitally the puppet 
I think you're going to be kind of like a Frankenstein. <laughs> I think it would look good. Like, like the stickers we made. Like the stickers you designed. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, which means I've got to do some hair work if I'm going to go with a werewolf, but the beard thing kind of broke. <laughs> but um, I was going to sculpt it in, uh, in ZBrush on the same core so I know the mold of it would, would fit. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to use Extract to reduce it evenly all over. Tell you what, I'm going to send you, I'll send you the scan uh, file of, of your head, the one that I did for Jan Stu. Okay, thank with you. With your beard, yeah. and then you can just mod- turn, turn that into a werewolf. Okay, yeah, no, why not? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And your head as well. I think you okay. may send me your head, but yeah, we'll, we'll work with that. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to print it as, as, as a core, because the thing is, if I mold it on that, it will fit the original core that I've already printed because it's the same model, right? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to sculpt as a test. I'm going to sculpt up the Frankenstein U on it, on my arm. Then I'm going to extract it smaller. So the whole thing's going to be like three mil smaller, evenly all over. I'm going to print that. And then I'm going to sculpt the remaining three mil. Basically the blocking out is done digitally. And then I will do the texturing the surface with plastiline just to see how it looks. I'll probably end up flocking anyway. So you won't see any of that. But my point is I want to try and see how it feels because that's a really good use of the material. You can actually get something that's slightly smaller all over. So you've done the, the, the legwork, the heavy lifting done digitally. And then the finish is plastiline. So you have all that detail and see. I'm sure it could be just all digital and printed, but the plan is to do that on one. And on the other one, I might sculpt it digitally and then just print the molds and see how it goes. So giving myself these little jobs, extra little things. You have options. So I have options and I'm going to try all the things I would try in jobs on this, you know, my own little job. And I have jobs coming in. I mean, I'm busy for the rest of the year, but by putting these little things in when I can, it just means I'm going to try things using ZBrush, incorporating ZBrush into my workflow. I'll find out what works, what doesn't work. I'm fully prepared to waste my time trying it. And then if it doesn't work, I know it doesn't work. And then, you know, at some point I'll be asked to do something. I'll be like, oh, I can use this method there. And it's, it's, it's just trying to pull in, use what ZBrush is in my world. And there are all kinds of worlds out there, you know, model making and all kinds of medical stuff that are just using ZBrush for different things, not just prosthetic stuff. So um, it's very, very exciting. But at the same time, I'm also sculpting pieces, you know, things are happening and I'm sculpting with plastiline on, on the cause. So I, I don't see why you have to do one or the other. I think it's good to do both. Absolutely. Nice. And I remember not knowing how to do any of this, but uh, I'm hoping that listening to Maddie will make you as a listener, I go, oh, I will try it because the beautiful thing is, as well, she comes from a background of, of practical world. You know, she worked with her hands making pieces and making models, and that never went away. And she even says about how much she hated ZBrush and was hoping that, well, how hating digital and hoping that Y2K would just wipe out all computers. So she didn't have to learn it. Yeah, but she still loves pushing clay around. Yeah. Well, you don't have to do one or the other. That's the thing. You can do both. But um, she's a great sculptor and she's a great teacher, and we had a great time talking to her. So I guess I'll stop talking now and, uh, and let Maddie do her thing. And I, I keep, keep going back to them just because they're so thorough. I think, okay, I've got this down and I'll, it'll be maybe a, a couple of weeks before I can try something again. And I get, you know, it's working, it's working, working. What, what, the, what was I supposed to do here? What? And I go back and look at the video again and oh, duh. And, and bam, off I go like to the races again. That's great. I love I love hearing that. It's I really I've always I've been teaching actually 
classes at Noman since 2006, in addition to doing the videos. And I always tell all of my classes that I think the thing that I'm most proud of after, out of every like movie, everything I've been involved in is just the, the, the classes that I've taught since 2006, all the different students, all the artists I've been able to share information with, and everybody who's seen, read the books or seen the, the videos, because you don't really know a thing until you can communicate it, like really know it, know it, and I just, I love sharing the information. It's that Dick Smith tradition. Um, absolutely. You know, if you want to know how to do something, all you got to do is ask. Yeah. And I think that there's a certain amount of pleasure in that, because I know what it's like when you sculpt for clients or something, you know, they're not you know they're finding the holes in it because they're paying for it but people who want to learn something it's a completely different experience yeah yeah <laughs> it's quite refreshing actually yeah definitely I'll turn my mic up a touch <clears throat> yeah when you're not on a on a deadline uh to get something finished and it's got to be this way and it's got to be that when you have the the time and the freedom to go in and, and make stupid mistakes and fuck things up and go back and fix it you know the lovely thing about it being a software you can't really break it yeah so you know you can just go back and i love that you have all of these undos and you can different see different iterations of things and with layers being able to dial that in we've been talking this week about you know bridging the digital and the practical world mm -hmm. and how you could sculpt several different ideas for a makeup using layers to get production mm -hmm. to sign off on and then lock that in and you've got your reference if you need to do a, a practical sculpt of it or you can go ahead and print that you can do a extract and boolean subtract and all that stuff to get your positive and your negative and literally print the the mold yeah for your piece right there and with printing costs coming down yeah is that you, a, a newish? I mean, obviously you've been designing and working digitally for a while, but is it is it is it fair to say it's a new thing to have these things now turned out practically, whereas um, before they would have just been on the screen as an image? Yeah, I mean, having having access to affordable three D printing, like desktop three D printing, is relatively new. I mean, when I you know first moved to Los Angeles and was working at General Giant Studios, the the quality of printer that would fill up a room is now on you know my kitchen table. And that's amazing, and that's put that's put the tools in so many people's hands. You know, there there were people that were thinking about it back in the early two thousands. How can I use three D printing to facilitate um, a practical makeup effects or practical creature effects approach? But it was you know only in the hands of people who really could afford the the tools. And so many people can now that it's it's wonderful, and there's so many people exploring it and doing really cool things with it. So yeah, it's definitely new in the fact that it's the democratization of the, the spread of that um, technology. Are any of the things that you are working on or have worked on in the in the recent past being translated into practical pieces, or is it still uh, pretty much a, a digital realm for you? In the recent past, not so much. I did a couple things where um, I was picking up some stuff and then doing design work that would be done practically, but it's been a long time. Most of what I do now it's designed digitally and then realized digitally. Um, and I would love to do more that's being you know, realized as an animatronic or makeup, but it's just the, the shows that I'm working on tends to be you know, from ZBrush and Photoshop into you know, Maya and, and the pipeline. Do you still work physically? I mean, I, I know you studied in Florence. 
Yeah, I love, you know, I, as you see, I'm in, in a bit of a small London flat, so I, I make the space I can to do the, the sculpting. Um, I, I recently started sculpting in wax again, doing like um, lost wax casting and looking at doing you know, ZBrush for that as well, because lots of folks are doing amazing stuff with um, with ZBrush and 3D printing for, for jewelry. Um, but yeah, I do try and always, I'm just not happy unless I'm sort of touching and holding form and moving things around. So. That was my big thing in, in making my switch from visual effects animation yeah. to practical makeup effects is I've, I've always been a tactile person. And, mm -hmm. you know, I love being able to hold what I'm working on. And now with the digital world mm. and printing it, you can get the best of both worlds. Yeah. Yeah. It's really good to hear you saying about like the, the practical, because it doesn't have to be like mutually exclusive. It's like you can still sculpt manually. It's not like one replaces the other. You want to. Yeah. And you can down. so easily make a quick mold and pour a you know, monster clay in it or wax in it and then have a, you know, an object that you can work into with your sculpting tools that started out in ZBrush. And again, back to the fact that it's, it's not that expensive of a process anymore. Um, it's feasible to bounce back and forth between the two Having what advice would you offer to someone who has been working practically and maybe trepidatious about making the bridging that gap over to the digital world well if they're if they're looking at zbrush for digital sculpting and I, what i always say is that the learning curve looks far more steep than it is it doesn't look like other programs if you've if you're familiar with any other 3d programs if you've never touched 3d before you might be just trepidatious about the idea of working in 3D. But everything you know that matters, you already know. You know about form, you know about sculpting, you know about um, you know the play of light across the surface. That's all the important stuff. It's very easy to learn where to press the buttons, what buttons to press, and how to navigate the program. And it's much faster to learn that than you think when you're first looking at it. And once you get over that initial learning curve, there's this dump of everything that you already know, that your your muscle memory knows, your hands know, your eyes can recognize. It goes right into the program, and you're able to do the the same work. But you can do it, um, you know, on at, at your desk at three o'clock in the morning without having to pick up little bits of romaplastine out of the carpet. <laughs> so, <laughs> been there. Yeah, yeah same. it's my childhood. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, I mean, anybody that's that's thinking about making that leap, absolutely make it because you're just going to open up a, a whole new tool set, a whole new world for yourself. And it doesn't mean also that, you know, you have to leave um, clay. I mean, I remember, you remember Y2K? Remember the Y2K mm -hmm. scare? I remember like right before year 2000, I was sitting, I was sitting in, my, in my room watching Blade and admiring the designs on Blade. And I was thinking, man, I really hope that Y2K knocks out all the computers so I don't have to learn digital. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of a short-sighted, you know, also, you know, end of the world, but none of that happened. And I said, okay, fine, I'll, I'll, I'll pick up digital. And um, really, I, I would have dropped it had ZBrush not come out because ZBrush was the first thing that let me take what, you know, I expected sculpting to be and apply it in the computer. Because when I first came to 3D modeling, I, mean, I would say, all right, well, how do I make a, a creature bust? And they'd be like, oh, you... You move points around in space. I was like, okay, I can kind of get with that. And then I was like, well, how do you? How do I put details and wrinkles on it? And they're like, oh, well, you paint a map for that, a bump map. I'm like, what? <laughs> this is stupid. I'm not going to do this. And so I was about to change my major, and um, I saw ZBrush 2.5B, 1.5B, and this was at SCAD. Yeah, this is at SCAD, Savannah College of Art and Design. Were you at the Atlanta campus, or were you in Savannah? Uh, Savannah. There was no Atlanta campus then. Yeah, that was 2002, I think. 2000. Yeah, 2002. 
and dove into it and just I was like, yes, this is it. This is this immediate tactile kind of feeling of sculpting. If I want to make, if I want a form, I just make the form. And I think I was really lucky that I had the background in sculpting to inform what I was trying to do with the Wacom tablet. It wasn't even a Cintiq yet. Do you remember any of the forced feedback tools? Yeah, I used those at General Giant, the haptic haptic freeform, I think it was. Yeah, everybody who used that ended up with repetitive stress injury in their shoulder because you're sitting there holding that little arm and it was funny because to me it always felt like um a bit of a gimmick it's like i know that i'm not touching the thing yeah. and touch it turns out wasn't really what i respond to when i'm when i'm sculpting it's just seeing the light and the shadow and the mid-tone i think and, that's probably true for yeah. for most sculptors i yeah. i remember trying it at a at a sigraph one mm-hmm. year and think i don't really like this very much yeah probably yeah. very delicate as well i should think well it it <laughs> I mean, it was still. It still felt kind of prototypey that yeah. it wasn't wasn't really there. Mm-hmm. It was neat because it had this voxel-based technology that allowed you to cut a negative space in something the way you would in clay. That was really nice, and it's still there's still kind of an extra step in most programs to just punch a hole in something that you wouldn't really have in freeform. You could just punch a hole right through it, or in, in voxels, or you know that was nice, but. It's there's so many things that it didn't do well at the time. I'm interested to see if it comes back around because I was just saying the other day, like I remember metaballs and voxels and and that stuff. There's yeah, Lightwave kind of helped pioneer some of that stuff. Yeah, and it has a lot of potential, but it n- never really came back around. I think 3D Coat does some stuff with it, um, but it was one of those things. Just being able to to just scoop and carve and blob things on was really interesting, and I think that some of the um, the VR sculpting tools are mm. similar. I played with those. Have you done any VR sculpting yet? No, no. I've heard of Medium, mm. and that, that seems, uh, it's a few people I know in, um, like, Lars Carlson's been doing that in Sweden. Yeah, and, and Frank Ibolito was, was using uh, the Oculus. You know, yeah. yeah. Kind of, and I think Rod Maxwell has been doing it yes. also. And I remember him talking about walking around a sculpture and being able to climb up into a nostril and walk around inside the nose to... Seems yeah. a little extreme, but I'd like to try kinda, it. Kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Can we yeah. talk about your sort of background in sculpting? Like, what mm-hmm. what drew? You, were you surrounded by sculpture and stuff as a kid, or were you? Was it something you started becoming interested in completely independently of? I just parent? wanted to make monsters, and I was reading Fangoria, and gosh, where did it where did it start? I mean, I've always loved monsters. Always, I cannot think of a time that I didn't just absolutely love monsters and want to hang out with monsters and have monster friends coming over at night and <laughs> just you know i'm so sorry about halloween over here it's just just a drag compared isn't it? it's, it's funny it's <laughs> funny that way i was it's better than it was in new zealand because halloween falls in the spring in new zealand which is just you're trying to get in the mood but it's spring and it's, it's very strange but um the uh i was just i loved like the whole just monsters i love monsters and then i remember I, I got fangoria and i think i was getting maybe like the last issues of famous monsters of Filmland, and um tom savini's book grand illusions and just got you know really cheap modeling clay in my parents basement and started trying to to sculpt and i uh you know just, just making little busts and making little heads and stuff and then like getting into you know more advanced ideas like i remember there was i think there were these two videotapes. One of them was um, it was a book. It was a it was a, a tape on prosthetics that was sold in in Fangoria. It was Dick, not Dick. It was a Dan Didrick. Dan Didrick, yes, 
Ken Didrick. Yeah, I remember that. Because we looked know. at the Michael Burnett ones. Yeah. Uh, yes. When we went to your house. Yeah. That's yeah. it. Gross teeth effects. And yes. All that, and the, oh, and, and I love the Michael Burnett ones too. Yeah. Oh my God. I, I, I made that gut effect that he did to make it. I bought his whole set and I made the gut effect. And we made a little video. We made a, a horror movie at my friend's house one weekend. But I remember I learned how to do um, life casts from that. My mom drove me up to the dental supply house a couple miles from, from my house. And they were really just charmed by this little kid coming in buying alginate and i bought alginate took it home and my mom let me do a cast of her head and i made a, a severed head of my mom which she was so proud of <laughs> and um yeah i just went from there and i think it was carl zundel did um a, a halloween mask making once so i learned how to do a two-part plaster mold from that because you know there just wasn't the wealth of information so easily accessible then that there is now yeah Gore's yeah. was amazing as well do you remember the the yeah the, the effects lab tutorials with mm-hmm. Kathleen and, and the Lee Bagan's and, book was a big one for yeah. me getting going uh, I've got a video on my phone right now from the last time I was visiting um, my parents house where I found the 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 rubber tubing hand cable control hand that I made from the Gorezone um tutorial oh it was my god! my parents basement it was so funny that's yeah. awesome yeah they had some great tutorials I remember the plaster tutorial about stacking the plaster they time it so mm-hmm. you, know, you make some ultra oh, cow yeah. and then you know so you master it and yeah it was just little little things like that you don't see too much of that now a lot of it's mm-hmm. we were just up, we it, were just up in bolton um last week mm-hmm. or early yeah, it was last monday, la- tuesday yeah last oh, last yeah. monday and tuesday and there were these little plaster towers all along the back wall and in one of the effects classrooms where oh, they'd yeah. been doing the, the the little plaster thing yeah that was so cool. That, then that was that was Kaylee and Drexler because they did a lot of their labs. Because I remember the the Dick Tracy book yeah. by Mike Bonifer, and I've still got it. And the one with the brow, I remember seeing the brow makeup, and you could yeah. see where it had been blended into the skin, and it hadn't been coloured, but they powdered it. But you could already see that just a lick of colour on that was going to blend in. And you were like, oh, you know, that was that yeah. moment where it was still fake, but you could see it was going to work. Mm-hmm. And it was always like, how do you get to that point? And like you, I didn't know anybody that did it, so it was just in books for me. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it was in English. I'm in England, so we had different materials and different material names and things, mm-hmm. which is why I think this is so much fun for us because yeah. I'll say something, oh, yeah, the equivalent of that is this, and mm-hmm. people listening to the States will know what I'm talking about because you know what I mean. And Yeah, it's, it's, it's mad how that works. So did you have any friends that were into it, or were you just like, you know, this kind of <laughs> frustrated, like trying was, to do things? It was pretty much just me. I mean, I had friends, other friends that read Fangoria and would kind of tinker with it, but none of them were sort of just myopic about it as me and obsessed with it and just trying to to do more and more and did you try the makeup route or was sculpting kind of always well, sculpting was in your what future I, like really really loved doing and i i would you know i did uh, you know i learned probably like sculpting prosthetics and worked on like did i remember making like my own gelatin prosthetics at home and started working for a makeup effects artist in atlanta bill splat johnson who's still working in atlanta mm-hmm. really really great he's huge huge influence on me because I remember it was like my 20th birthday, I think, and I had had his business card since I was 15. I had gone up to this, um, oh, it's Atlanta costume, I think, that had a makeup um, counter, and I would buy supplies there. And they gave me his card, like, don't tell him we gave you this card, but you should call this guy. And I was just too shy until like five years later, and I called and said, um, can I like come clean out your studio for free or something? And he's, uh, I said, oh, I'm busy, call me back tomorrow. So I called back the next day, and he's like, oh, you don't ever do this, but yeah, I, I need some help right now, so come on out. And it became a friendship, and I worked um, on a lot of stuff for him and did um, sculpting on Eight-Legged Freaks and you know, mainly sculpting like um, 
dead spiders and stuff like that and did um, some prosthetics in theater and film in Atlanta for a bit before I, I went and decided, well, I'm going to go to art school. And then I ended up picking up ZBrush. So, Bill's yeah. been good about mentoring young up and comers yeah i was the first he was like i'll never do this and then i guess i didn't i didn't mess it up so i'm really yeah, well, really glad because he's because he's he's still doing it so where did you go from there so you start you discovered zbrush did someone show you that or did you stumble across it somehow or was it something that someone was saying oh you have to check this out um th- at the time i remember there was um a, some a couple scripts that had been written from maya where people would do, do, do difference maps between a high resolution mesh and a low resolution mesh and I remember seeing that around the same time as seeing the first images that had been done by the beta testers for 1.5B who were all working on, I think, the two towers at the time, um, the Lord of the Rings film. And just seeing it, I was like, oh, my God, that's amazing. And, and I kind of I was like, I get what this is. So we're extracting a displacement map so you can actually render what you're sculpting. So if you've got two million polygons, you can still actually use it. I was like, this is incredible. I've got to get this. And I um, got a, a Wacom tablet and... and I pre-purchased it. I think um, the 1.5B, I think I, I purchased it and then it was released and then I was able to download it. And I've actually still got the CD in the other room that they mailed me for my uh, for my first Z-Rush. So I've got the CD-ROM. I just found it the other day in storage. And yeah, it was um, just, I'd seen it around online and um, it was the answer. It was what, you know, I was like I was saying before, that like 3D just didn't feel like anything like sculpting or anything that I enjoyed about it. Had you modeled in, in Max or Maya? Before yeah. that? Yeah, I'd been playing with 3D Studio Max 2.5, I think. And um, Maya 1.0, I'd been tinkering with it. But again, it was like, you know, it was either lofting splines or nerves or um, it just, none of it had that brushed-based immediacy. It was beneficial to learn, like, box modeling. But still, there was that big leap between getting you know an edge looped head and getting sort of the the gravity in the folds and getting all that thing all that that stuff that you can't quite get if you're just sort of moving points around with no brush based interface so i've done a little bit of it but none of it really stuck with me so for listeners who have no idea what maddie just said you know, if that if that was like swahili to you we'll we'll put a, a little glossary in the in the show notes to kind of explain what this stuff means and and how it translates into a sculpture you can recognize and feel it's all i mean all of those those methodologies are pretty antiquated at this point if you can if you are a a good sculptor and you can sculpt in zbrush and create a nice form a really resolved sculpture um using all the things that you already know in terms of you know gravity and and weight and, and balance then it's a very tiny thing to either learn how to build a model on top of that to, to then use in a 3D pipeline, or it's very often somebody specializes in that and they can do that part that, you know, there's a difference between being a very, very, very good sculptor and being a very adept sort of pipeline modeler. And they're, they're you know, often they overlap, but they don't have to. So don't ever find yourself going, oh gosh, I don't know what polygon modeling is. I don't know what this is. I don't know what that is. Just get into ZBrush and get to sculpting, get comfortable with, with translating your sculptural knowledge into digital, and then the rest of that will fall into place much faster than you, you might ever think. That's great advice. Yeah, it's, it's coming at it, like you say, from that sculpture point of view. It's just a tool, because it doesn't sculpt for you. It certainly makes things easier, like having had to weld up armatures and order tons of clay and mm-hmm. dispose of the things and make molds. It's, it, it, 
what, what we've said this before it's like what you find out is what you don't know anatomically very quickly yeah. so it feels like the program but it's not it's actually <laughs> an absence of information yeah if you don't understand primary and, and secondary form zbrush is not going to make make the process any easier for you yeah yeah exactly like all every term there's you know, students come in and they're dividing the mashup really high and adding all this detail. It's like, no, you can go through all 10 weeks of this class and if you never put a wrinkle or a pour on anything, I'll be happy because it's all that detail and all that, that you know, those little fiddly bits are not going to make something that doesn't have good gesture and good form look good. Mm. You know, think of like all the, you know, think of Michelangelo's David or Donatello's David. There's no detail on that. That's all pure form. And if you do a really good form, you're 99% of the way there. You can put, I mean, there, I never, I don't ever want to like sell short the, the importance of understanding how skin wrinkles or how pores are shaped. But I feel like for someone you know, like who's just learning how to sculpt, they can come to it and just not worry about that part and just worry about the way the, the forms wedge together. And like you said, primary and secondary form. Yeah. Well, that, that's what I think ZBrush does very well is it, it you're, you're kind of forced to think about because you can have such a low resolution thing that you can only look at the form. Mm-hmm. And I think, especially when people are starting out because they see the surface first they're distracted by the surface and it's kind of like what i've done with with prosthetic sculpting is is, is you know blur images of, of older faces so you can't see the form so you're not distracted by it yeah. so you're focused on the on the, on the form which is nice because you can pull those things around have you got um if, if so, so someone's listening to this go i fancy trying sculpting what how would you what would you would you be so kind as to give us what would you say like this is what you should do first like I don't know, sculpt a self-portrait of the head or draw oh. some clay or, or get some nomad going on and an ipad or something or, or all of that i think um well i would grab um the zbrush trial there's a trial zbrush version now you can get that how do you feel about the the core and the z core zbrush core mini and all that kind of stuff the lower ones as well do you think have you ever look at those yeah up? i've played with those and those are great those are wonderful introductions zbrush core is 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 great if you just want to sort of like dip your toes in and get a feel for it but there is the the trial version which you can try the full version which is will give you enough time to work through some tutorials and i always tell people check out either like you know my nomen workshop tutorials or anything on the the pixelogic website and they're in their z classroom learn how to grab a sphere and start sculpting ahead of a sphere and just do lots of sphere sketches and i think don't get stuck in trying to perfect one thing for too long. I would work on it for like a day or a few hours, throw it away, do another one. Just do a whole bunch of them, and you're going to very quickly start to get a feel for what the brushes do, how they react to the surface, and how you can move things around. And there's this tool in there called Dynamesh that you'll come across. And Dynamesh makes it really, really easy to sort of pull things out, make volumes, and start sculpting stuff around. But what you're going to find is at a certain point, and Dynamesh will just, it doesn't give you that ability to step up and down subdivision levels. So seeing things in their most simplified form can be, well, this is probably too much information for somebody just starting, but um, no, it's good. This is- that don't get stuck in, in making the model more and more dense. Just think about like the big shapes, think about how those shapes wedge and how those forms wedge into one another and how they relate to one another. Just try and get that subtlety of touch because it's all about dialing back the brush intensity, relaxing, and building things up. I call it sneaking up on shapes, just building them up bit by bit, and then stop, open a new sphere, do another one, repeat. And then you will be 
doing really well much faster than you might expect. Just um, don't become overwhelmed by how many options there are, because most of the stuff in the program you can never touch and it'll never miss. All right. Saying that, yeah. with so many brushes at your disposal, mm-hmm. are there you know, a th- three or four brushes that you think are essential mm-hmm. that will be the ones to, to work with initially and don't, yeah. don't worry about the others yet? Yeah, I've always said that there's <clears throat> everyone has five brushes, and it's just like sculpting tools. Like in my sculpting kit, I've got probably hundreds and hundreds of dollars worth of sculpting tools and five that I would ever actually use and brushes like paint brushes painters the same way and with ZBrush there's usually five brushes and for me it's always move standard inflate clay tubes and dam standard and I do 90% of everything I do with those five brushes but if you open the brush menu in ZBrush you'll see this massive palette of brushes it's overwhelming it's option paralysis you have no idea what to do I start every class with just these five brushes, you can use these five brushes for the rest of this term, and you can do anything that I do in the demonstrations because you just don't need all these specialized tools to get most of the stuff that you want to get across across. And if you kind of adopt too many, you know, if you try and dive into every single brush at the beginning, you're going to spin your wheels and just be like, oh, what about this brush? What about this? starting to use this one? And that's just a waste of time. Those five brushes are all you really need. And everybody's probably got a little variant on theirs, and once people become accustomed to it, they'll find maybe their own five that they like because they'll start to branch out and explore what this brush or that brush might do. But yeah, I think that sneaking up on thing is awesome. Yeah. I really like that because there's a certain anxiety, certainly with prosthetic sculpting, where you kind of want to, I don't know, as you get more experience, you want to get it on quickly so you can see what it is and then start mm-hmm. relaxing because most of it's there. And I'm the opposite with ZBrush. I'm very nervous, so I'm, I'm sneaking up on it because I'm nervous about finding out what I can't do. He sneaks up on it and then he yells at it. <laughs> and I yell at it. <laughs> Why isn't this like clay? Yeah. <laughs> but I will get there, I promise. I always take the clay tubes brush and ZBrush and turn the alpha off <clears throat> because it builds up form in this really, and turn down the Z intensity, and it builds up form in this very soft fall off. That's not, it's not like a like an airbrush. It's still got an edge, discernible edge to it, but it lets me sort of build things up and then, knock it back a little bit, build it up, and then I get that chaos of, of repeating and building things up bit by bit, knocking them back and building them up. So it's more like actually adding little bits of clay, mm-hmm. which, you know, you don't want to lar- throw in large chunks. You want to do little bits at a time, as Neil mm-hmm. calls them, little sausages of clay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Neil, I'm not a very good impersonator. At, at Florence, um, Florence Academy of Art, we did um, everything with, little, with balls of clay. You'd start with big balls, put down big balls of clay and then smaller and smaller until you were putting down smaller and smaller balls of clay that when you step back it had that that effect where the surface blurred together and you had a, a refined surface without smoothing it this is another thing people can over smooth don't over smooth your sculpture like something that i do that i mean i tell them in my classes i'm like this is kind of an advanced thing don't try and do this right out of the gate but i don't smooth my meshes for a long time, I use um, planar brushes, and I knock back big planes, and then smaller planes, and smaller planes, and I get a curved form by knocking down smaller and smaller planes to it, like we would if we were raking clay. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, that's that's just one of those things. It's like you know how to do it in clay if you've got your rakes and you're you're thinking about the the planar analysis of the shape. But then you get into ZBrush, and it's very easy to miss, like because you don't necessarily have a rake that you know is like the one that you're you're accustomed to using. So you might be like, oh how do I get that thing and you just forget it and you just everything looks smooth and that's a really important thing I think is to not over smooth your surface and not lose your form and make it just blobby and soft how long were you in Florence uh, I was just there for like three months two months it was, I was gonna do the full program but um, 
I had just graduated from uni and I was like, oh, no, I really wanted, I really want to stay here and do this. But I also had the opportunity to go to California and get back into the film industry. So I decided to do that. I am. Um, it's one of those branching moments in your career. You could have gone one way or another. I could have been sort of, you know, overstaying a visa and hiding out in, in a um, an art academy like the other Americans at the school. <laughs> <laughs> Can we talk a bit about um, when you were sculpting? Obviously, when you're sculpting for a, for a job, for a show, you will have a brief, presumably, and it's, mm -hmm. you know, there are parameters you work within. Because I think that's quite important, is it, to have a brief. Mm -hmm. how, do, how do you find working with a brief? Obviously, you've got a lot of latitude within that. Is, is, it, is it creative, or do you like to have more choice, or is it... Do you find that, you know, no matter how tight somebody's a brief can make it? I mean, I think tight briefs are quite hard to come by. Normally, most people don't really know what they want. Do they? Yeah, <laughs> it's the joke is always like when you get to that page in the script, they're like, and then the monster turns the corner and it's like nothing you've ever seen before. And then <laughs> so slowly. You, yeah, how do you get that out of them? What is, well, then slowly over the next few months, it becomes exactly like something you've seen before as you get more and more notes back. It's like, wait, this is just Predator with tentacles. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean it's it, it's it's always based on a relationship um and it varies from 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 show to show and client to client some some um, my favorites are the ones where where i can really get in and talk to the client about the the brief if there's an open brief or a loose brief or if they're not quite sure and i can you know share you know why i think this particular thing works why this particular idea works why this um is is a better way to you know not to fall back on this cliche but maybe subvert expectations um or to you know you know to make something unique and put it on screen and it's really great when when you can have that great relationship where there's this back and forth and they they trust you as a designer to you know who's been thinking about monsters for you know decades uh to to bring them something really unique and then you know but you, you can't be married to anything that you come up with in this industry it will change sometimes it changes because there's multiple people involved in it that have different ideas it could come because somebody's genuinely worried like oh maybe i should maybe this is too much maybe i should change it or maybe they just have a different idea about what they want you can't like take it to heart and think oh god i failed you know but it's really great when when you have a really wonderful um back and forth and you can you can take that brief and turn it into something really really mm. quite cool mm. I mean, I'm wondering how, if there's a literacy to, to working with sculpt, you know, designs and things that obviously some clients are better at than others. I mean, I know Don Lanning was saying about how, like, he's very good at, you know, it's their job. Um, they're the one. Yeah. Everyone's up to a good he old helps, He, helps, them, he helps pull pull the ideas out of them that they, that are inside them that they don't know they have yet. Yeah. And I think it's, it, it speaks <laughs> to your experience that you're like, you're not eager to get that stuff. You know, you want to, you want to fulfill them so they're happy rather than inflict on them what you insist on doing kind of thing. Yeah. That's not going to work very well. Otherwise. No, not at all. <laughs> I mean, it's great when you can, um, when someone says, I want something like I've never seen before. And I always tell, I always tell the artists on my team, it's like, it's, it's always better for somebody to say, well, can you pull back from that? Then can you push that further? <laughs> Cause I think you should really just kind of overwhelm the senses with, oh my gosh, that's really out there. That's really wild. That's really cool. Maybe you should pull them back from that. Or if you're lucky, they say, let's go with that. That's, um, that's really neat. And, um, you know, but if, if you have to ultimately, you know, we're, we're, a commercial artist that's that's hired to do a job so you you know um you have to do what the the client is asking for and if they have an idea about something that you don't think is the best you still that's not really your place you can try and you know steer them away from from you know a mistake 
and like I said, that comes with the with the relationships, with the relationships that are that are quite uh, communicative. It's really good to be able to say, well, that that potentially will be a problem because of this, or I don't think that's going to read really well in in this scene, or this is not going to be as effective as this. If you can be literate and make your case, um, you know, with clear visual language, these are visual people. Um, then usually it's well received. But if you just go in there, oh, that's not what I want to do. That's you know, sorry. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's a very important thing, like you say, to be able to communicate your reasons for something very clearly so that they know why. Well, that's also something that we've we've been talking about through the this last series of, of podcasts since I've been here is, um, you know, as artists, you know, what what's the difference between being a fine artist and a commercial artist? You know, sometimes those lines are blurred. But as a commercial artist, when you're you're hired, you're a hired gun. You're mm-hmm. doing something, creating something that, is not your idea mm-hmm. and as artists it's pretty difficult sometimes to separate yourself from that you're you're putting part of yourself into that even though it's not your work mm-hmm. ultimately yeah and and hard to have a thick skin and take those constructive criticisms and say, that's not what i want mm-hmm. uh, do this instead make you know go 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 that direction instead of this direction and to do that objectively and not take it personally mm-hmm. and to have the wherewithal to understand if you have a client who's telling you that's not what i want they have a clear vision and that's a blessing you should be really happy that they've got a clear idea of exactly either what they want or what they don't want and it's not you know you're not just spinning your wheels against oh no not that maybe something else I mean, that's that's valuable yeah that's a really good point because like you say it's it's your your skill as a, as a sculptor is to, is to supply them what they need so it's not just about you being good at sculpting is about doing it in a commercial environment and a big part of that is between the lines yeah communication is is critical because sometimes they they don't know what they want they know what they don't want Mm -hmm. but they don't you know it's yeah i i don't want that i'm not sure what i do want and (laughs) trying to (laughs) try it's it's one of those smacking your head against the wall because but you have to maintain that's where sometimes it's really good if if you can you know a big part of all of this is 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 as as being this this in, as this role of an artist and designer is having um a, a, a visual vocabulary and being you know having the confidence to speak from that experience and from that visual vocabulary and someone says that's not what I want I know that that's not what I want we'll say well then 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 put together a mood board put together some sketches put together some ideas and present them and don't shy away from from you know be, don't be afraid to approach the client and talk to the client about it say this is what i think would work and this is why i think this would work does this hit any of the notes that that you find appealing is there anything in this that you like and then you can narrow the things down and um like i always talk to people about you know having having their visual vocabulary in place understanding being able to communicate like you know Guillermo del Toro was always the most amazing communicator to me. I just remember on The Hobbit when he was communicating about designs in the in the design room on The Hobbit, he could spe- he could say so specifically what he was responding to by referencing, um, you know, Gasly Graham Ingalls, Joel Peter Witkin, and Jack Kirby in one sentence, and it's that's so precise and exact, and it's a shared visual vocabulary with, with a lot of of us who come from that. You know, from monsters and creatures and characters, we know exactly what he's talking about for the most part. We know our gastrogram angles, our, our um, 
uh, Bernie Reichston, um, you know, and the 20th century contemporary photographer, Joel Peter Witkin, like notorious for shooting these really ghastly images. So it's, it, it's so, it tells, it's so specific. And that left a big impression on me. And going forward, as I've spent more and more time talking to clients in art, you know, in, in, in the, in the context of sort of art directing and, and getting um, a creature design nailed down, being able to sit back and think to myself, well, I, Interpreting their artistic brief, I think that they that you know this particular photographer sort of hits that note, or this particular sculpture. For you know, I did I can't be specific because it's still under NDA, but I did I did a mood board once for for a creature. I was like, well, Bernini has a sculpture that really hits what I think they would be interested in, and there is this contemporary photographer from the 1970s that had this very ghostly style and I think that that would really hit as well and I put these things together and then make the case for it speak to why I chose these things why I think this is what you want because they're also hiring somebody that knows about design that's mm -hmm. what they want they so don't necessarily want to like hit you with a riding crop and you know <laughs> like force you to do your job you know you should make life easier on them that's I mean that's really exciting to hear because it's that 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 desire and you know looking around us all the things it's that thing of like you're you're connected interest in so many things that you pull them into your sculpture it's not about mm -hmm. it doesn't start with zebrush zebrush is just where the, the things get kind of combined but yeah. you want to have that kind of constantly hungry mind where you're looking like you say photography or music or anything you know we were talking about we were listening to Nick Cave on the way up here and like like so the murder ballads album like some of those would make amazing videos you were saying yeah. like short stories yeah. be like or just little sections like this the thing where he says my eyes grew small my eyes grew tight and i have like an in my head i know what that looks like yeah very, i want to see that as a very makeup, visual you know? mm -hmm. and how you rotate and they move the eyes slightly apart so a bit more predatory and it's like mm, you know but yeah i, I mean and just looking around your flat is it's, i can see so many sources of, of inspiration and ideas you know because ultimately zbrush as amazing as it is it's just a tool you know it's not it's the going, blinking it's, cursor isn't it if you're trying yeah, to write a book it's like yeah, you can't it's, start it's with not going to yeah. give you the ideas yeah. it's not going to going to fabricate the storyline it's just a tool that will help you <clears throat> realize a vision in your head from inspiration that you've gotten from lord knows where you know any number of different different sources yeah, I think everybody should to try and look at. I mean, there's like wonderful things on ArtStation, and there's wonderful things on Instagram, and I love looking at what others are doing in the industry. But I always think you know you should look for inspiration in, in unusual places. Look at like I mean, my favorite art is um, you know the symbolist art movement, which is you know predates the surrealists, but they dealt a lot with with dreams and with mythology, and there's just there's beautiful, beautiful imagery of these uncanny kind of figures and uncanny creatures and I'm and, you know inspired by that inspired by the the renaissance sculptures of um I think it was Zampano he did the, the plague waxes of these just terrifying plague victims that were done in miniatures and wax and I find that stuff really inspiring and there's things that I pull out of that and it's like oh that that's really cool and it's um it's good to to be inspired by your peers and what's going on in in our industry uh, but it's also good to expand your visual vocabulary and pull from from sources that everyone else isn't pulling from, not just because you want to be different, just because you want to expand. You know, for the same reason you would expand any vocabulary, it, it facilitates communication. Yeah. And something I want to mention too about people that that are maybe coming from from a practical background who want to do ZBrush, please. 
please do it because <laughs> something that really strikes me is there are people out there with decades of experience thinking about creatures and making sculptures of, of creatures and characters and monsters. And that is invaluable. And we need that in the world of, of design that's that's digital, that's informing a lot of CG and, and CG effects. We need that type of expertise because, I mean, you look at, I mean, just, just you know, it goes back to that visual vocabulary. People that can say, "Hey, that that reminds me a bit of a of a of a botine thing, you know, design for the thing," or that's got a touch of uh, the um, gargoyles design by um, um, Stan Winston, or that's got this or that. There's so much. There's like a plethora of 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 ground that's been covered. And I remember people used to say, "It's a little intimidating because like everybody's done an alien. Can you do a new alien?" It's like you can always put form together in new ways. But people that come from this this makeup effects and this practical background, you come from for lack of a better term, a pedigree, you come from a tradition, you come from a world where people have been thinking about these shapes and making these things and making these compelling creatures for so long. You are, we, you need to be making that available to the wider industry. Well, we did a, did a talk with, with Jake Garber, <clears throat> and one of the points that he made to, to the room full of, you know, I think mostly students, uh, was that the more you can do the more you get to do mm. so that that plays right in with that thinking and it's 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 refreshing to hear everyone we talk to echoing these these same things you know reinforcing that information yeah it's you know we do it because we can't not do it it's mm. it's part of our nature yeah. it's, it's in the blood Mm -hmm. It's like you're saying about that older stuff as well. It's like well, well, a lot of people, I think, get their ideas from existing sculptures, which is cool, or what they see on Instagram. But like, there's, there's so much. I mean, I yeah. bought some books on medieval art recently because I was really interested in like um, uh, the Bayeux tapestry, and, and and then got into the plague and, and the, the depictions of that kind of stuff because I just like the the naive is probably the wrong word, but do you know how there was a kind of a clumsiness to it? Mm -hmm. It wasn't necessarily accurate, but it was gone. And, you know, they were trying to portray stuff that was happening at the time. And there's this good book called The Sick Rose. I don't know if you've seen it. It's yeah. kind of medical, you know, illustrations of diseases. Joanna Epstein, I think, published that. Yeah. It's from the Morbid, Morbid Anatomy Museum in New York, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, there's like three or yeah. four books, I think, in yeah. the series. And that, yeah, good <laughs> <laughs> and that was you know that's another example of like trying to trying to trying to use that the, you know the, the the medium of painting in silk to render a, you know a canker in 16th century japan or whatever and it's mm -hmm. like there's something about that that's of that time you know there was no cameras or anything so you had to do and you know there was a reason to do it and so it has it's imbued with all the camera stuff. of the day yeah. yeah it's imbued with all this stuff at the time but you receive it a slightly different way because you're seeing it as this other way and it just fires off. It's like you were saying about you know people not having bad ideas. You might be uncensored. You know, the people censor themselves nowadays. But in a, a kind of a writer's room, you want to be able to not censor yourself because even though it might be a crap idea, it might make somebody else come up with something else. Exactly it just feeds. Yeah, and if you hold if you space. hold it back, that that brilliant seed never germinates. Mm -hmm. So you know, it's everything is fair game. There's no such thing as a stupid idea. Yeah, I, I find that at the beginning, like in the very first sort of deliveries for a concept pass on something sometimes people can be has like pull their punches or pull things back it's like no let's let's you know you don't want to be overwhelming with the amount of art that you send but hearing what it is not is as valuable as getting an idea of what it is so like putting a whole like plethora of ideas out there and 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 don't be afraid to sort of 
present a wide swath of things and, and find out, you know, maybe none of these things are right. But now we know that it's not these things and we can change direction. Well, I'm fascinated by how Maxfield Parrish used light, sunlight in the clouds and, and reflections and refractions. And maybe you're not into painting clouds, but what he did could easily be coming from within a creature that's mm-hmm. got this light coming. You know, there's the sky's the limit. You know, yeah. Excuse the pun, but everything. You know, everything's fair game. Yeah, absolutely. And experience as much as possible. Um, so you feed your brain with all kinds of things. Yeah, and then it's, you're sculpting it's, you've got to be. You have to. You have to leave yourself open to letting everything in because mm-hmm. it's all going to be valuable. Whether you want to be an actor, a writer, a painter, a sculptor, it's all important. Yeah, absolutely. It's the it's the vocabulary. It's yeah, just another exactly. It's all communication. And looking at all these books, I mean, horror books and ghost stories and stuff. Mm-hmm. That was I just love all that. Do you know what I love about horror stories and things is, I mean, especially with books, there's there's nothing visual in them. They're all just words, so that the images come in your head. So twenty people could read that book, and you'd have twenty different versions of what it is. It's creepy. Yeah, and that's what's lovely about sculpting because it felt like a, or drawing. It was a way of like getting that out in a way you could kind of show somebody else yeah uh there was a comic i used to read as a kid i don't know if you would have seen it it was an english comic i have a whole set that i managed to track it down on ebay we were talking earlier about nostalgia and how much that costs with right. the existence of ebay i tracked down a bunch of gorzons that i was after i found a comic i need to send you the link as well i'll send it to you i managed to get them all on pdf as well i have the prints there's only run i think it was 18 editions long I think it was 1983 when it came out called Scream. Oh, and yeah. it was a British comic and it was just a horror comic. And it, there was, it, it finished around the time there was a printer strike in London. And there was a whole big thing. And I think a load of comics and publications, you know, crashed and, and fused and uh, comics kind of went out of fashion a bit. But in it, there were all these different strips and they were, they didn't pull any punches. I mean, they were, they were terrifying. They were really mm-hmm. creepy stories. Um, and there was so many things in there that I'm like, they would make amazing TV shows or little sculptures and things. And that, I remember then, even though I didn't know anything about sculpting, wanting to somehow get it out. Mm-hmm. I wanted to show other people what it was physically, what it was I didn't like, which is why I think I, I drifted towards makeup. Because yeah. to me, it was like a minimal sculpting because I could make a small thing, put it on someone and the rest of it was there and yeah. it would perform for you yeah. or it'd be on me or something like that. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's quite gratifying to me to see that you like that kind of stuff. I'm so yeah. blown away, honestly. I'm so excited by all the stuff you have. It's, it's. I had no idea it would be this cool. Oh, thanks. It's amazing. It's just, I, I, I want everything in here. <laughs> I love having these things. Like, you know, we're in, be in a meeting with a client talking about something that's got wings, and I can walk into the other room and bring in, you know, a, a set of taxidermied wings and say, well, this is you know, what we're looking for here, you want this and do this. And it's, it's funny. It's so it's, it really can make an impression on, on someone who's, you know, looking to you to, to realize their brief. If you can walk in the other room and bring in, you know, some tangible natural history specimens reference, like, Oh, okay, I'm in good hands. Then <laughs> Look what they've got there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And if you're trying to sculpt something that you know what it feels like and, and you know, mm-hmm. then it's a completely different kettle of fish. Yeah, just, I mean, even something that you you think that you can picture in your head. Like, I always think, like, use the analogy of, like, you know, if playing the song that's on, for anybody that's musically inclined, you know, you don't play the song in your head, you play what's on the sheet music. Because what you think you heard, or what you think the song is, isn't really 
what the song is on the sheet music and it's true with reference too like if you go look at the reference like the the taxidermy chickens there the 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 feet you know you might picture what those look like in your head but once you really are looking at the reference you see all these little all these little touches of veracity that that you wouldn't think to put in there you know i had a mentor in school paul hudson he's one of the most amazing artists i've ever known huge influence on me he always always say you know your viewer will know when you're lying don't tell lies go outside take some fake blood, mix it up, spatter on the wall. You'll never make up a blood splatter that looks as real as something you just splattered on the wall. Or, you know, drape some fabric. Or, you know, look at photo reference. Take your own reference. Shoot things. And it's, you know, it makes a huge difference. There's things you wouldn't think to put in there if you didn't look at it. I think that can be the problem with with sculpting some things. And it certainly happens with makeup, is that there's there's an ego involved. Like, you want to produce things and it takes quite a lot to get past that so that you let things happen Mm -hmm. and perhaps you uh you enable some degree of randomness to take place that you're not entirely responsible for but if you're like well i want it all to be me and it's like but you you know sometimes you have to facilitate things rather than be responsible for every single stroke oh god i love happy accents like when i draw i'm just making random marks in my sketchbook and then picking out things i see out of that and when I'm sculpting in ZBrush, I'll tell like people in you know in my demos, I'll, I'll make these. You know, I'm sculpting from my arm, not my wrist, and I'm making big gestural shapes and moving around it quickly. And then I'm trying to find accidental forms in the clay, quote clay, in the digital clay, to pull out and, and say, oh, that's neat. What is that? So I'm like discovering it as I go along and seeing things grow out of the clay and seeing it become something new. Like I always, you know, often I don't really know where something's going. I have a vague idea of what it's going to be and it's not what it, I, it ends up being when I'm finished. It's, I like that adventure of seeing it grow. I think it's nice when you're doing something for, for a job and you were like, we were talking about the things you're doing for yourself, like you've done these kind of metal castings and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, something that I've got this, I've been thinking about this a while since we were in Portsmouth yesterday. There were a bunch of... Um, like automaton machines where you put you know some coins in and a little thing happens and a few of them were like late victorian mm-hmm. wax delicate figures and i like the idea of being able to sculpt something and make something that it's a complete thing whereas if you sculpt a makeup or you sculpt a creature unless it's sitting in the context of the movie or the show it's kind of odd by itself and it's something quite nice about like this like an object where it's a standalone thing it's a finished thing like you were saying like something that exists beyond the movie and I think that's really important and I, I get quite excited about the thought of ZBrush landing in the hands of other people that are not necessarily even interested in film they're just going to do other cool things with it and where that might go yeah well I like your idea of if just as you're working on something you, ha- you have a, a general idea of what you want it to be but it kind of takes on a life of its own and it evolves and you're you're more of a vessel than 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 the driver yeah yeah that's really that's a great way of putting it I don't know what to say. I feel like I've, <laughs> I'm, I'm just blown away by the, just, the whole thing. Yeah. I feel like words I use with the mouth, the mouth will just <laughs> let me down because it's just, it's such a visual thing that we're trying to get across. Right, we can shoot some photos and include them. So, I mean, I believe in, in, in you know, like curating a space and I'm, well, you've you know, done a magnificent job of it. Oh, thank you. And I want everything to around me to sort of reflect back something that, you know, I've, you know, wanted my space to be since I was a little kid, you know, looking at the Adams family or the Munsters house. And, you know, I, um, I just, every, everywhere I look, I want there to be something that's inspiring or, or beautiful or, or excites me. Yeah. It's funny you should mention the Adams family. I wanted my house to look like that. Oh yeah. <laughs> I remember when I was like five years old, my mom got me this 
cardboard haunted house play playroom off the back of one of the monster cereals like Count Chocula and it, it arrived in the mail and we put it together and I just loved it it was this, this like cardboard haunted house that was probably maybe the size of this table because I was tiny and I remember I was such a weird kid I'd be like when she was sweeping up I'd be like can you put the dust inside of my haunted house <laughs> <laughs> it looks authentic. A little weirdo. Yeah, such a weirdo. But there is something weird about models when you see like a you know constructed little sets and things. They're like complete things, mm-hmm. and this the the lovely. I mean, they're just really really cool. And I get very excited about that when I see three D printed things that are like little landscapes and things because yeah. you could you you know you can you can create things digitally that don't occupy space whilst you're making them, and then if you want to, you can output them. Yeah, you know, in a three D printer and, and have the object. It's really neat to see also like your mistakes when you print something out. You see, you recognize when you see it in the real world, like either mistakes that you're making when you're looking at it or mistakes that you make because of the the way the camera tricks your eye in 3D. And I find that really interesting because I'm never, I'm, I'm, I'm all, like, I always say that like I'm, I didn't get into art to sit back and look at what I did and go, God, I'm really great. <laughs> I got into it because I wanted that. I'm addicted to that wonderful feeling of, oh gosh, I now know how to do that thing I wanted to do. Like that feeling I got when I first watched like the Dan Didrick video. I was like, so that's how you make a casting. Or I get the, the flashing to work. It's like, oh, that's how you make an edge on a prosthetic. Or that's how you sculpt a zygomatic arch. Or that's how you make the the, the pectoralis muscles look correct and to me it's this every everything I do I want to look at it I mean everything I do I, I always say like I've, I've only ever liked anything I've ever done for maybe a couple days and then I just see the mistakes I see the things that I want to fix but I don't I don't get down about that I don't look at it and think oh I'm terrible I look at it and I'm like yeah this is what I need to change this is what I should do better next time and that's what it really excites me as each thing is this journey it's this new chance to do something new it's not a chance to just like shore up your laurels and say look how amazing i am those light bulb moments yeah exactly yeah that was, that's what it's all about those aha moments those light bulb moments that make you feel like oh yeah this is why i love this this is this is what i wanted to do yeah well it's again it's, this is what we have been talking about with students that we, it's it's a journey it's not it's not a destination and, yeah and you know it's, it's okay to, to look at your work and think it's pretty good but it's there's always something that you can do better. Yeah, it's never going to be perfect, it, and it, it can't be. And if and if you look at your work and think I'm there, that's you know time to start looking for something else to do because yeah. you're you're just not trying hard enough. Exactly. <clears throat> I would say that I would, like anatomy is, is something to to study because you'll never really master it. If you ever meet someone who says they're a master of anatomy, you you've also just met an asshole because <laughs> it's just an absurd idea it's like that it's an, an endless subject it's something that goes on and i mean i you know my the, the the most inspiring and most amazing artists i've ever met are aware of how hard they've worked and aware of how far they've come but they're always quite aware of how much they don't know and that's what excites them and that's left a huge impression on me and the people that are infinitely confident in their own abilities are tragically unaware of how little they know and sort of you know be be if, if you're if you're if you're sitting there thinking god there's so much i don't know there's so much i need to learn well that's exactly where you should be for the rest of your life so i wouldn't i wouldn't use that as a as anything to sort of beat yourself up with so hope this will get you guys into zbrush if you're not already into it or at least take a take a look because digital is here folks it's not going away yeah, and I just want to be able to use it more. I tell you what I want to do with it. I want just I just want to be able to do things with it 
that help me when I'm making prosthetics. I, I just don't want to not be able to use those tools because I don't know how. I think that's the thing. It's not about replacing stuff. It's about in addition to, you know. Um, yeah. And I'm, especially with the advent of, of, of reasonably affordable scanning devices, you know, it's going to make a big difference to be able to take something practical and mess with it digitally or even receive digital information. One of the things I think is really good. I had this, I think I told you about it on, it was a show I did last year and I needed to do some, I had weirdly, I had two, I had to do, uh, what are they called? Bunions. I had to do two bunion <laughs> makeups in the same year. One was on Matt Damon for the last duel and you barely see them. Uh, and that was done, you know, on the live casts and done properly with nice edges and everything. Uh, and I had another one uh, that was through Connor O'Sullivan. He gave me that nice little job. That was cool. Um, and another one was for which hasn't come out yet where a character has bunions, but they're through stocking. So you don't actually see the edges. So they didn't have to be as good. And there was no time to do a live cast. So I bought a foot scan and then basically sculpted the modification very quickly in ZBrush. And then I printed the foot scan and I printed the negative of the foot thing. And I basically just ran them in silica with no cap barrier, uh, just, you know, regular plat gel 10. Um, and then you stick them on the feet and then you put like a sock on over the top. So you didn't see the edges and the color was close, but it didn't have to be flawless. So it was like two examples of the same kind of job. One done very, very um, traditionally with, with beautiful edges and flawless application by, uh, I think it was, Rob O'Connor, um, and and you know, nice thing to do. And then this thing, which had to be done very very quick in like a day, um, but the edges didn't matter. And I was able to do that quickly, partly because of the fact that printing. And okay, it took like you know a day to print everything, but like I, that was happening while I was doing something else. So yeah, well, I've I've been doing the same thing. I've been uh, while well, I've had this three L here. Um, another medical um, case came in where. Uh, for a personal injury, wrongfully, a criminal negligence thing where this woman got, got her head stomped in jail and printed a, the full size, the skull was modeled by, by um, a medical illustrator in Kentucky. Files were sent to me uh, to print uh, this fractured skull uh, in a hematoma and it was made full, like full size mm -hmm. uh, and printed it in the 3L for for a jury trial you know the, and the skull was modeled from ct scans mm -hmm. and it looks amazing i saw pictures that you posted of that and that's that's a really good example of something that you know because the data's from that person yeah so moving, you can you know, you know use zbrush to to create marvelous examples to sh that people the jury will be able to hold this horrific injury in their hands mm. and and make their judgments yeah. And on a lighter side, I'm, I'm, you know, I used ZBrush to sculpt, uh, I'm making a, a porcelain rabbit doll for a children's theater production that uh, is going to be a, you know, like a 18 inch tall doll. Looks awesome. Yeah, Looks so it, was, cool. it, was, it was so much fun to push and pull points around in ZBrush to make this rabbit. That's amazing. And that's the thing is all this stuff is available to you using the same kinds of things the same devices, the same software, the same tools, same mindset, but in completely different context, you know, and something like that, where you're trying to take, you know, uh, I think in your case, it was with this medical thing. It's like, look, the jury don't understand the complexities of how that body works and how this particular thing, yeah. you know, affecting 
her health and so if you make a model of it you can physically show someone um and then it's suddenly like oh everyone can understand it now and it's like yeah, exactly and it's facilitated because of a model and i think this is one of the really exciting things about zbrush actually is how it's used in illustration because people will make a model and then use that model to create an illustration. But if you want to see it from a slightly different angle, you can use the same model to create a different illustration. And so the idea that, you know, medical illustrators, it's not just a drawing, it's, it's a three-dimensional model to create an image, but yeah, you don't have to worry exist. about, uh, about getting your perspective, right? Because you can just change the angle of the model and your perspective yeah has has changed and now yeah. all you have to do is use that as your reference and literally trace it and paint it in photoshop or corel painter or whatever digital paint program you are wanting, you're creating your illustration from mm. but you've used a, an actual 3d model to get it positioned correctly for the mm. illustration and it yeah. makes your job so much easier than trying to draw everything in proper perspective from scratch yeah well you can and you know there there will be purists who say oh that's cheating and it's, no it's not it's whatever you need to do to get get you to the end result well one of the things i find fascinating is that when you talk to other industries and like i say this medical stuff i've been doing there are there are you know engineers have been using this stuff like well not this not necessarily zbrush but they've been using cad to design things and look inside things and know that the tolerances are tight and that things will fit inside other things and hinge joints can be made and accommodations can be made for other things. So you might be making the thing that's going to be plastic. Somebody else can be making the steel thing. Somebody else is going to be making a circuit board and they all have to fit. So you make these spaces digitally and you know that they're going to work or you print up a prototype just to check. And then, you know, all of that stuff. And it's like these industries have been using this stuff for years. It's just not really in the realm of anything organic because all that stuff was very, you know, hard edged machiney, you know, hard edge stuff. Whereas yeah. now because of the processing power of computers and the software, it, you can do pretty much the same kind of thing, but wobbly skin stuff, <laughs> you know, and, and that wasn't something that most sculptors had at their fingertips. So it's there. And it is that it's a weird shift in perception to be able to uh, a accept it and b embrace it and use it. And it, there are going to be people like you know, and I understand it who don't want to go near it because they think it's a different thing. But I guess you just have to suck it and see because you might be surprised. Yeah, I was just how useful and how intuitive it is once you get past the interface of how it works. Well, that's one of the cool all... things about the space spider. I mean, it's designed by and for engineers still you know it's, it's more and more artists are starting to to find it and use it but it's still geared to to engineering to doing hard surface things like automobiles and engine blocks and stuff like that mm -hmm. but the level of detail with it as, as you saw is incredible you know poor texture and wrinkles it's perfect yeah that is amazing flawless yeah it's very exciting um, but you know i think next iterations of of that scanner will probably have some some options that are geared more to the fine artist than the engineer mm -hmm. yeah. i would hope yeah i think so i think so yeah that the more the more sort of fleshy organic stuff is, is 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 becoming more and more within the realm of, of that and you know the ability to be able to print stuff and prototype stuff is just 
it's exciting to see what people are doing with it as well you know yeah if you want to get in touch feel free to leave us a message on our speakpipe app which is just uh you go to our website battleswithbitsofrubber.com and you'll see a little thing you can just press uh and you can just uh leave us a voice ramble note. away you got five minutes you got five minutes to leave us a, an obscure message just it has a time limit so people don't waffle on like me or yeah, email us at stuartandtodd at gmail.com. Uh, and we'd love to hear from you. All right, dude. Thank you very yep, much. I'm, I'm, I'm back to the writing. Well, get it done. We need the book. We need to. Uh, we need an, another cool book to uh, to keep us informed and up to date, especially with all this extra scanny stuff and printy stuff. A lot of new stuff. Put it all it's into context to make it work. Major overhaul. I'm, I'm, ch- I'm reordering chapters. I'm moving stuff around adding a ton of things and some of the new contributors are going to be going to be awesome all right man all right good to see you good to talk to you and do it again soon yes sir all right bye-bye you can get in touch through our facebook page or email us at stuart and todd at gmail.com check the show notes for more information if you enjoyed this episode tell someone else and help us grow by sharing it on social media thanks for listening Okay, I'll do the makeup.